What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Famous theologian A.W. Tozer wrote that as the first line of his, his book, The Pursuit of God. And he got this right because our theology matters. Our theology matters. It affects everything that we do. It affects how you relate to God. It affects how you treat other people. It affects how you see yourself. It affects how you'll spend eternity. Our theology matters. And so that's why we're kicking off a new series called I Believe, exploring the theology of the Apostles' Creed. Now, I'll tell you more about this, that thing called the Apostles' Creed. But first, why spend, why spend nine weeks on theology? Well, I have, I have a few goals. I have a few goals with this series. First, first I want to help you clarify your beliefs. I want to help you clarify your beliefs. Do you know what you believe? Because every person alive, every person on earth right now has beliefs what they believe about God, what they believe about Jesus, about sin, salvation, eternity. Every person has beliefs, but not everybody knows what they believe. So, so for some of you, I want to help you clarify what you believe. Maybe some of these topics are things you've never even thought of before. And then, then my second goal, my second goal for this series is I want to help, I want to challenge some of your beliefs. I want to challenge some of your beliefs because, see, it's really easy to take Christianity and treat it like a Chinese buffet. Hmm, uh, all right, all right, okay. I, 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 I love that God's loving. I'll have some more of that. But I don't really like hell. I'm, I'm not going to, that's nasty. I'm not going to have any of that. Um, I love Jesus' miracles. I'm, I'm coming back for seconds on that. But the whole virgin birth thing, I'm staying away from that. That looks a little weird, okay? It's really easy to treat Christianity like a buffet, but the truth is it's not. And, and, and it's amazing how many of these unbiblical beliefs seep into our heads over time. In fact, a research organization named Barna, they've been studying Christians' beliefs for over 20 years. And, and some of their most recent research from 2015 says that only 17% of self-professing Christians have what is characterized as a Christian worldview. Only 17%. That means, I mean, in, in this sanctuary right now, there are a lot of us who might have some really unchristian, unbiblical beliefs. So I want to challenge some of those. And then lastly, my third goal for this series is I want to check your definition of what it means to be a Christian. The, the theologies, the, the beliefs we're going to be talking about over the next nine weeks have marked the foundations. They've marked the bare minimum, the essentials of Christian belief for 2,000 years. These represent the non-negotiables of what it means to be a Christian. And the truth is, if you disagree with some of these, you might not actually be a Christian. Certainly according to the definitions that's been around since Jesus. 
You might believe you're a Christian. You might say you're a Christian, but your beliefs would say otherwise. So three goals. And how we're going to do this, how I'm going to accomplish those goals is through something called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. Now, what this, this thing called the Apostles' Creed is, it is a structured set of beliefs that was written by the early church. And creeds were really important for the early church. For the first 500 years of the church, these creeds were so important because they helped define and clarify Christian belief. They helped define and clarify Christian belief. And this, this particular one called the Apostles' Creed, this is the earliest of all the creeds. There were about five major creeds that happened. Um, and this is the very first. In fact, it dates back to, to 150 A.D., possibly even as early as 120 A.D. And it's the very first one. And it's amazing because it was the first and it still stands as one of the best. And so the early church wrote this, and they struggled and wrestled over the language and the wording, and then they, uh, they approved it and adopted it. And it has stood as fundamental Christian doctrine ever since. So the early church used this particular creed, the Apostles' Creed, for a few different reasons. So first, first they used this creed as a teaching tool. So they used it like as a catechism. For those of you, maybe you grew up in a church where there was catechism. They used it for that. We might call it Sunday school curriculum. So they used it for that. They also used this, this Apostles' Creed to spot heresies and to identify false teachers and to point out what is not biblical. And then third, and this is actually one of my favorites, it was actually the very first baptism test. They turned this Apostles' Creed into questions and said, do you believe in this? Do you believe in this? Do you believe in this? Okay, let's get baptized. And it wasn't for, for a couple hundred years later until baptism became this long, they started doing baptism classes that last months and months and all of these things you have to go through. No, originally it was, here are the basics. Do you believe these things? Let's go get wet. Okay. Which, a little side note, we're doing baptisms again today after church. We've got three more people that want to get baptized, so we're doing more baptisms here today. after church at my house. We're doing the pool party and barbecue as well, so come on by after church. So, so this Apostles' Creed was critical for the, to the early church. And so I thought I'd read it to you. For those who aren't familiar, some of you might have grown up going to churches where everyone recited the Apostles' Creed. Some of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard of it. So I wanted to read along. And if you, if you grew up in a church that read this and you want to read it out loud as well, you can. Uh, at the end of service, we're going to have a, a time where we as a, as a River Life family can read it. But here is, I'm going to read the whole thing along and you can follow up on the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next nine weeks, the Apostles' Creed. But this week, we're just going to take the first line, the first sentence that we're going to look at. And it says, says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, you'll notice here three big attributes of God, three big attributes of God that that the, the creed begins with. God is Father, God is Almighty, and God is Creator. God is Father, God is Almighty, God is Creator. Now, Matt Chandler from the Village Church down in Texas has a great way of summing up these three attributes, the beginning of the Apostles' Creed. And he says that God is immensely powerful and intimately personal. God is immensely powerful and intimately personal. So to understand really what this means, we're going to take a look at a a passage out of the book of Acts. This is Acts 17. And and this passage, it's going to be about Paul and in his, in time, um, when he was visiting Athens. Now, this was, this was part of Paul's second major missionary journey. He took three major trips. This was his second one. And he traveled through what we would call Syria, up through Turkey, over to Greece, and then back down to Jerusalem. So this is his time in Greece. So when he arrived in Athens, which is a coastal city, he arrived in Athens, and first he, he went to the Jewish synagogue and preached there. And then he went over to the Greek marketplace. It was the hub of all the activity around this town. And he preached the gospel there. And then some people were really interested in him, so they invited him to kind of what would be what we might call the the town hall or the city hall. It was called the Areopagus. And at the Areopagus, that's where they held courts. That's where they held the city council meetings. Basically, the most important people in the city met there. And they invited him there to speak of of this gospel that that they had heard about. So there he is at the Areopagus. And he delivers a speech that directly confronts some Greek notions of God. And that's what we're going to look at today. So it's out of Acts 17. If you'd like to follow along, you can flip to it. You can click to it. It's going to be Acts 17. We're going to start in verse 24. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 24. It's also up on the screen. You can read along. And and this is him, remember, this is him delivering the speech to the group, the most important men of Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everything everyone life. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries in their land. So now, so Paul begins, he begins this speech by hitting hard the idea of God as almighty and creator. In fact, there were five big things, five big acts of God that he describes that fall into God as almighty and God as creator. Let's review them. Here we go. Ready? He made the whole world and everything in it, in case you think there's stuff that God didn't make. He made the whole world and everything in it. Second, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Now, that phrase heaven and earth is kind of like an idiom for everything. So he created everything and, he made, and he's Lord of everything. That word Lord, think of it like ruler. Like we don't have lords and serfs around. You, you don't walk up to go, oh, hello, my Lord. Okay, if you do, that's a little weird. Unless you're at the Renaissance Fair, then that's totally normal. Okay, but, but that means ruler. So when you see that, and here is the ruler. He didn't just create it, but he rules it. He runs the show. We keep going, okay? That he made all the nations. All the nations, all the nations. He marked out their appointed times. He marked out their boundaries. Think about that for a sec. As God in his infiniteness created all the nations, all of their times and all of their boundaries. Okay, let's see. Hmm. Okay, the Mesopotamians, they'll go from here to here. Let's see. Um, England, England, they'll go from here and they'll end over here. Let's see. America will go here and they'll end here with Trump. Um, no, I'm just kidding, okay? <laughs> but, but imagine doing all of that for all people, for all land, for all time, all at once. Does God seem pretty almighty when you think of it like that? He is. So, so that's, that's the first thing Paul starts with. And then, then you might ask the question, well, why? Why would God do all of that? Paul answers it next. God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is immensely powerful and intimately personal. He did all of that so that you would seek him and find him because he is not far from you. Some of you are here today. God brought you here today to hear that because you need to know God is not far from you. No matter your mistakes, no matter your hard week or your, your hard work week or your no work week, regardless of your successes or your failures, regardless of your insecurities or your pride, God is not far from you. And some of you are here today to hear that. You need to hear that. God is not far from you and he is not far from me. God is intimately personal. And it doesn't seem to fit together with God is immensely powerful. Those two things should not be together in the same paragraph. 
but in the God of Scripture, they are. They are. So then from there, Paul quotes two Greek philosophers. He actually uses their quotes to teach the Bible. First, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. God is intimately personal. Everything in us is in him. Everything that keeps us going is in him. All of our greatest desires are found in him. Our deepest needs are are found in him. Our life and our breath and everything about us is in him. That is an intimately personal God. And then he says, we are his offspring. We are his children. You are his sons. You are his daughters. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into his family. You are his children, and he is your father. The relationship he has with you is that of a father to their child. So then he shifts in this speech. Then he shifts into application. And this begins with the word therefore. And as I always say, whenever you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. So this therefore is there because he's, he wants to help them connect their theology with their daily life. It's really easy to disconnect theology from daily life, but he doesn't want to do that. So he says God is, is um, personal and powerful. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. And there it is. Why does theology matter? What do we do with theological belief? We check our hearts and we repent. But what should we repent of? What are we supposed to repent of? Well, you repent of not believing that God is immensely powerful. You repent of not believing that God is intimately personal. You repent of not really believing that God is Father. You repent of not believing that God is Creator. You repent of not believing that God is Almighty. That's what we repent of. We repent of bad theology. And that's what Paul is calling. He called the Greek leaders to, and he's calling us to repent. And now he finishes up with the reason. Why should we repent? And he finishes up with this. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And in case you don't catch it, that's Jesus. Jesus as judge. Why should we repent? Because Jesus will come back as judge. And we're actually going to talk about that in a few weeks because that's part of the Apostles' Creed. So come on back in, I think, three to four weeks. 
and we'll talk more about that line. So, Paul is calling us to repent. What do we do with that? How do we know we should repent? If we're supposed to repent of bad theology, how do we know if we have bad theology? Well, the Apostles' Creed can help us. Remember, it's a teaching tool. It's meant to, to be able to point out heresies or bad theologies. So, so let me read it again. Hey, okay, here we go. I believe in God the Father. Excuse me, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Remember the three big characteristics, three big characteristics of God. One, he is Father. Two, he is Almighty. Three, he is creator. So let's look at these. What might bad theology look like for us in each of these characteristics? Well, first, let's say God is Father. Now, some of you, some of you might bristle against that. Some of you might push back a little bit about against that. Maybe you, you would advocate for gender-inclusive language of God. Refer to God as God's self, not a himself not a father, because God isn't, is not a male gender. And, and, and you believe you should argue that we should remove these male words, these, this gender uh, male-specific language for God. And you would argue for that. Okay? Or maybe some of you, maybe some of you, the truth is, man, you didn't really like your father growing up, and maybe you still don't. And you might think to yourself, if God is like my father, I want nothing to do with him. If God is like that, if God is like the fathers I've seen around, then that is not a good God. Now, while those two things might be true, one, that God is not male, or, and two, that you might not have had a positive experience with your father. While those might be true, excuse me, it doesn't change the fact that Scripture consistently, through the Old and the New Testament, uses the language of father. Jesus himself described God as father, but specifically described God as father in a relational term. If you look at these passages, it talks about God is in relationship to us, the best of father, okay? not in gender as male. Okay? Nowhere in Scripture is God described as mother. A lot through Scripture, God has maternal characteristics, but never described or called out to, as mother. So, so yes, there is baggage. Yes, yes, the church historically and currently can be patriarchal. And yes, there are some lousy fathers out there. But it doesn't change that we have a good father in heaven. Now, that's an example of how an explicit or a direct heresy or bad theology might come into play. But how about more subtle ways? More subtle ways of that bad theology creep into our lives, okay? Maybe, do you ever see God as distant or detached from life, maybe even from the world? Uh, some deists will, will say that God created the earth and then he just took a step back and let the earth go about its business. 
That is not the view of an intimate father. So if you believe that God is detached or distant or uninvolved, chances are you might not really believe that God is father, that he is intimately personal. Um, to be honest with you, this is probably one of, out of all these, this is one of my struggle with the most. I have loving but kind of detached relationships with my family. So that's what my relationship with God is like. And I struggle through be really believing that God is intimately involved in my life, that he is alongside me my whole life, all my days, 24 hours a day, he's there with me. That in my mind, I think my default is that God is kind of out there and I'm here. And I know that's bad theology. But even more important is I'm missing out on a relationship. I'm missing out on a, an intimate, close, personal relationship with God. And you might be missing out on that as well. So those are some examples of how bad theology might come into play with your life. Let's go to the next one. God is almighty. What might that look like? What might be something that you would need to confess, you would need to repent of about your view as God as almighty? Well, I don't meet many people who have a limited power view of God. I, in fact, I don't think I've ever met someone who says, yeah, you know what? I believe God can do these things, but I don't really believe God can do the rest of this. Okay? So we don't really see that very often. In fact, I might be hard-pressed if I went with each one of you. I might be hard-pressed to find anyone in this sanctuary here who would believe that God only has a little bit of power, but he lacks some power. But you know what? I think a lot of us live in ways that we don't believe God is almighty. We live out ways on a daily basis where we, we say, I don't really believe God is almighty. What does it look like? Well, how's your worry level? How's your anxiety? Worry and anxiety have at its root a lack of trusting in God. And there's a fear that God isn't powerful enough. So I have to worry. Or how about when things go bad? What are you like when things go bad? Do you get more controlling? Do you get more judgmental? Do you get sharp and angry and testy, short-tempered when things go bad? You know what? there's a good chance you don't really believe that God is almighty. Why? Because when things go bad, you need to fix it. You need to take care of things. You need to control the situation. You need to control the people around you to fix this problem because God's not really going to fix it. You believe God isn't almighty. Or how about when you need advice? Where do you go to for advice? Do you go ask all your friends? Do you post up on Facebook? Do you Google it? Okay. If you turn to Siri before God, you probably don't believe God's almighty. You might believe Steve Jobs is almighty, okay? but you might not believe that God is almighty. Is he the person you turn to or not? These are all ways we live out bad theology. Let's take the, th the third one. 
creator. God is creator. Well, first there's the, there's the obvious thing. Do you believe in the evolutionary origin of humans? If you do, that's heresy. That's, that is disbelieving that God is creator. Now, that doesn't mean, to believe that God is creator doesn't mean you can't believe anything about evolutionary science or natural selection, survival of the fittest. Those are all well-documented natural and scientific facts. It also doesn't mean that you have to believe everything that Ken Ham and the answers in Genesis people do in the ark exhibit. You don't have to believe everything they say either. But what it does mean to say that God is creator, and the Bible is very clear about this, that God created humans as unique and special and above everything else. It is the pinnacle of his creation. It is the best thing God ever created is us. We aren't an accident. We aren't a result of, of statistical probability. We are the act of a loving God, powerful, almighty creator. So that's one way, to, one way we can get God as creator wrong. How about some other ones? Well, um, the, the, the phrase, uh, my body, my choice, it, it, it's a common rallying cry for the pro-choice movement. Now, there's a problem, though. It's wrong. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying the movement is wrong, but the, my body, my choice, no, it's not your body. You didn't create it. You don't sustain it. You're not going to choose when it ends. All of our bodies, my body is not my own. In fact, those exact words are in Scripture. My body is not my own. We belong to God. And when we start to look at ourselves as our own authority, as our own owner, we reject God as creator. When we fail to see him as our creator, he's the one that owns it all, which means he's the one that owns me and he's the one that owns you. So whether that applies to your health, whatever the next tattoo you want to get, how much you drink when you go out, your body is not your own. It's not your choice. And it's not my choice because we didn't create our bodies. And because God created them, we have an obligation to him. We have a call to see what he wants us to do with our bodies, what he wants to do with our world, what he wants us to do with our families. God is creator. So, what do you need to repent about? What bad theology is lurking inside your minds and inside your hearts? Because there's something in there. There's something in there that is heresy. There's something in there that goes against the Apostles' Creed. Something in there that goes against 2,000 years of Christian belief. And God is calling you to confess that today. God is calling you to confess, to repent. 
So at the end of each of the messages, we, we as the River Life family, as a congregation, are going to recite the part of the Apostles' Creed that we've studied up to. So here we're just going to recite the first line. Next week, we're going to add a couple more phrases onto that. And each week, we're going to add a little bit more. And I do that because I don't want you to recite something you don't believe. Because then you're just lying. It's even hypocritical. So if, if, if you're at the end of this message and, and, and you can sit confidently and say, I believe God is Father, Almighty, and Creator. Then I want you to recite this with everybody. And if you don't, that's okay. You don't have to recite this. Don't feel pressured. Don't feel guilted. But allow God to continue poking at your heart. Allow God to continue saying, repent of your bad theology. Repent of your definition of being a Christian. Because you're not the one who determines that. God does. So, so if we can pull it up, there we go. So there's the first line. So together, let's recite that. If you believe this, it's time to say it out loud. So here we go. Ready? Go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There you go. That is your creed this morning. That is your statement of belief.